Hello, everyone. Wilkinson here. Today I'm with my friend David Wichman. He's the author of Every Grain of Sand, which is a very interesting book. I picked it up, started reading it, and couldn't put it down till I was done, literally. So nice writing, David. <laughs> Say hello to everybody. Hello, everybody. Okay, I think as a basis, we probably need a little bit of your story. We don't want to go into it for half an hour or something like that. But can you just kind of give a general outline of where you've been? And where you are right now. In reference to, since I've written the book? Your, or, your life. I oh, just give right me, now? Give it, let's hear I'm, a little bit of your story. I'm doing some really incredible work with men in the wellness space, I guess I'll say, uh, the wellness space. Okay. Uh, I do massage and sound bath therapy. I've been a sex worker for se 17 years now, and... Um, and I've evolved a lot over the years. Early on, it was really about all of the sex. And now it really has uh, truly become about connecting and really uh, witnessing other men kind of emerging into where they're at today. Okay. Well, how did you get there? Let's hear a little of the story. Because not everyone has read the book. Okay. Well, of course, we'll want them to read the book. Right. But just to, to, get up, to get them there, let's, let's hear a little bit my, of the story. My standard answer is it's in my book. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's not going to be helpful. No, so. that's not good yeah. enough. Um, you know, I grew up in the Bay Area, and I lived a very uh, pretty chaotic and uh, really dark uh, existence as a child and uh, struggled with addiction for many, many, many years. And um, a lot about what's in the book, especially early on, is um, talks a lot about my uh, struggle with addiction and my struggle with um, self-loathing and areas like that. And, you know, as I grew up, uh, I started uh, diving into uh, survival sex work. And a lot of that was, you know, to pay the rent or to have a place to sleep or mm -hmm. to eat. And the book goes through that adventure. And, um, and as time went on, because of my addiction and my uh, lack of education, uh, I had a very few trained or employable skills. And uh, I ended up really diving into being a sex worker and really uh, learning a lot from the men that I saw and growing as a result of that work, I guess I should say. And so the book talks a lot about that, uh, that part of my life and how I got to be where I am today, which I feel is like, I just said it this morning to a good friend of mine. I said, I really feel like I hit the jackpot. Like I hit the lottery <laughs> and I really feel it's not that I'm comfortable in my skin or that I'm healed, but I feel like I'm on purpose. And so the book takes you through that journey and it gets you to the end, to where I believe and feel and, and embody uh, my purpose. As a little intro to uh, where you were or where you are right now, I've asked you to just read something from the beginning of your book. Read that to me right now. Okay. And this is just uh, from the dedication. And I wrote, for all who are experiencing the unimaginable, for those requesting love in ways almost no one understands. For you in the midst of unspeakable injustice and deafening silence. You who feel alone, unloved, and unlovable. You are my why. What I know is this. You will never be broken. It's your light that shines brighter than most, and that is why they see you. That is why they are afraid. For you have seen the true darkness. There are many of us who are seeking you. Your only job now is to light the way. Shine, my love. 
shine so they keep seeing you. It's what you were born to do. This book is for you. Love, David. That's great. That really hit me. Mm. So I had a question. Oh, sure. Who, who is the they? Who are you talking about there? Uh, perpetrators of oppression, abusers, mm -hmm. uh, instigators of trauma, uh, parents, messengers, religious uh, organizations, society at large, anyone who makes you feel like you're separate or anyone who has taken an innocent child or someone who feels different and, and shown them uh, disdain. Mm. That's the they. <laughs> okay. My, a, a friend of mine read your book or he was starting to read it. And he told me when he was reading the story of how you were abused, mm. he had to put the book down. He couldn't, yeah. I mean, he went back to it and he finished the book, but he couldn't continue to read it. He had to take a break. It was mm. so bad. So do you feel you've pretty well healed from all that? Or where are you on that? Mm. That's a really important question. Really good question. What I've discovered is that I didn't need to heal, that I wasn't broken to begin with, that I believed that I was broken. I believed I was unlovable. I believed that, um, that I wasn't heard or seen. Mm -hmm. And I had to go down quite a precarious path before I got to where I am today. And so a lot of what I will say about what I am, where I'm at today, to me still feels a little unbelievable because I can't, look back and go, wow, uh, it's a little difficult to explain without getting very into this very uh, sort of metaphysical ideology around um, wholeness. And so there's a really important lesson, I guess, sort of lesson that I've learned about who we are as people mm -hmm. and who we are as humans. And I, you can do this sort of test with almost anybody and, and it, it really is simple and I can ask you, if you see someone who's hungry, what do you wish for them? Hmm. Wow. That brought up a whole lot of emotions. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's what I feel. And if you see someone who is hurting, what do you wish for them? Wholeness. I mean, if you see someone who's experiencing trauma and uh, discontent and despair, what do you wish for them? That they could be taken out of that. Yeah. And that is who you are and nothing, no amount of abuse or trauma or uh, war or uh, hunger can ever change that in me. Uh -huh. It can never change that in you. And what happened to me in my life, because I experienced incredible brutality, incredible separateness, incredible uh, trauma. I, and I was in this constant seeking of relief from that pain, constant seeking of relief of, of wanting to feel like I was seen and heard and more importantly, believed because for many years I wasn't believed. And it, and I had to really discover why are you seeking the idea that you're seen or heard or that you, that you're lovable. And it's because I didn't feel lovable. And it took me, and I'm 53 now, and it took me a really long time to discover who I was beneath the wound, beyond my beliefs, beyond my body, is that I am this person who desires those who are hungry to be fed, those who are in pain to be uh, soothed, 
those who are in stress to be, you know, at, at peace, all of those things. And that identifies who I am in my core and all of the other stuff that I think I am, the amazing David and the sex worker and the healer and the client, you know, I've overcome this adversity or I've wallowed in the gutter with drug addiction is not truly who I am. It's what I've experienced. It doesn't identify me at all. It's really simple what identifies me. And it is as simple as to want peace for everyone I encounter, mm -hmm. to want love and kindness and gentleness, to uh, bring tenderness in places where there is chaos. And so as a human, once we start recognizing that, uh, before we jump and point our finger and say, you are bad and you are good, you're acceptable and you're not acceptable because we see this with people like Donald Trump and Hitler and all of these things. Marianne Williamson, who I don't really talk about a lot, but she says this thing that is really important that I think is, has a lot of value. Every human being on this planet, every um, evolved thinking human with emotions is only doing one of two things. We are requesting love or we are expressing love. And when you look at someone that is sort of a abusive person or someone who is uh, committing crimes or sticking needles in their arms or being abusive to others. And if we can get to a place where we say, wow, they're requesting love in ways almost no one can understand. That is really powerful. And when someone is calling out for love, who's saying, I'm in pain, I need to be seen. They're also requesting love. And when we are compassionate and empathetic and loving and kind, even to those who may ha be harming others, even to those who um, are, are abusers, it's not that we've forgiven them. It's not that we're accepting their violence. So it's not that we're accepting their, their, um, their chaos. It's that we are seeing that they're requesting love in ways that I can't understand. And it allows us this small little moment to breathe and be like, okay, that person beneath their wound is just like me. Exactly. And, and I don't mean to say that like we're all alike. We're, we're all very different and very unique and wonderful, interesting, chaotic, horrible people all at the same time. Mm -hmm. And we all have the capacity to be all of those things. And so I, um, a big part of this process for me has just been really gratifying in a way because I'm actually able to Hmm. I say this very, with great trepidation, step outside of judgment for a moment and just witness what I'm seeing mm. before I'm pointing my finger, before I'm running away, before I'm reacting or responding to a situation that feels, um, traumatizing to me, or, you know, it doesn't mean that I don't react. It doesn't mean that I don't get angry. It doesn't mean that I don't respond. It doesn't mean that people who are horrible and people are horrible don't piss me off because they do. But I know that there's an opportunity and a moment to be able to ask myself, is this person, is this person, is this environment, is this experience a request for love or an expression of love? And it's a really powerful place to be. It's interesting because I'm sure there are people listening to this podcast when they hear, oh, I'm a sex worker. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to, you know, a lot of bells and whistles are going to go off in them, which is very interesting. So 
of course, my thoughts on all this have changed over the years. Not that I'm, you know, doing the same thing, but my, I think what you just said, my judgment has really lessened a lot on, on all of that. I think one of the things reading your book was you talk about really you're, you're giving love to the quote unquote unlovable person is you're bringing, you're bringing them something that they wouldn't have access to. Would you agree with that? Or do you just look I, at it in a I different don't way? want to agree with that. Although it seemingly presents that way to a lot of people okay. because, and I really, a little backstory. I had to rewrite part of this book myself because okay. there was a lot of that narrative going on in the book when I read the first draft and I was like, is this true? Am okay. I really loving the unlovable? Am I really providing a service to somebody who couldn't access it elsewhere? Or am I, what am I getting from this experience besides money? And I had to really think long and hard about that because there are people all over the world who are um, marginalized or uh, feel isolated that are even hand, uh, disabled or um, have uh, multiple sclerosis, uh, ALS, things like that, that can access intimacy. They can access different versions of intimacy. And I think very specifically what my work does a lot is it accesses the erotic intimacy that people crave. And not everyone craves erotic intimacy. Not everyone needs that like they need air and food and water. But my belief system, especially when I was writing this book, was that we all must have erotic intimacy. It's what we need and crave. And what I've discovered over time is that it's not it's not necessarily eroticism that is the medicine. It is the connection. And really importantly, it is the acceptance, uh, absolute acceptance of who I am in that room of myself before I can stand before an amputee, before I can be in front of a man who weighs 500 pounds and hasn't been touched in three years and mm. absolutely fully and 100% accept him exactly where he's at. And there's no heroics in doing that. We are, if you're really coming from the the idea of what we just talked about of wholeness, right. everyone is acceptable. Everyone is absolutely acceptable. It's just, we have so many curtains, so many masks, so many layers over us and judgment and thoughts and uh, even intellect gets in the way of acceptance. Okay. So everyone is acceptable, but that person may not think, right. They might Bingo. not think that they're acceptable. Exactly. And so and that's my you're, job. You're working through that, right? Exactly. Okay. You, you said it way better than I could. It's, it's the idea that you're acceptable. It's the moment that you are embraceable, that you feel connected and lovable and sexy, you know? So. It reminds me of, you know, I do, I do photography and mostly I shoot, I shoot men, especially in the gay culture. They're everybody's down on themselves, you know, whether they have full blown body dysmorphia or whatever, they, they think one thing in their head and what other people's you know, or looking at and what they see could be totally different. And one of the blessings for me, one of the things I just totally get off on is over the 20 years I've been doing that is in a lot of the times they're, you know, they're naked photo shoots. So a lot of gay guys want to do a naked photo shoot and they're scared shitless to do a naked photo shoot. So both things are going on at the same time. They, they do it, they step out of their comfort zone and they do it. And then uh, keeping in mind that they really don't think they look very good. And then, so I photograph them through my eyes and I, I present that back to them after I do some minor editing on it. 
And in one form or another, I've heard this dozens of times, they, they look at the photos thinking what they have believed about themselves. And then they say, whoa, I date me. <laughs> You know, I love and it. I, and I go, bingo, you're, you're getting it. And so that was like, it's like a breakthrough for them. And so for what I do, I think it's, it's totally different, but it, it's, it's along the same lines. It's, it's showing, absolutely. it's showing people really who they are. Absolutely. It is. You are a photographic prostitute. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> and a sacred one at that. And I say that because if you uh, have ever learned about the sacred prostitute, you know that they're the keepers of the temple. They're the the medicine. And it's and what you're doing is medicine. It is you're healing people with your work and art and creativity and photography and sex and eroticism and pornography and all of those things play a huge part in that. And I love that you told me that story because that is so... That is really beautiful. It's a really powerful, wonderful uh, thing to hear. And it puts a smile on my face when they say it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Talk about what you're passionate about for sure. And this brings me to a thought. The foreword to the book was written by uh, TJ Woodward. And who is he in your life? TJ is... Uh, <laughs> I work with TJ was sort of like a conscious coach for me mm -hmm. uh, in my later recovery years as somebody who I've known for many, many years, but um, he uh, is a best-selling author. He's an inspirational speaker and he's a recovery specialist. And I read one of his books and I was like, I want to work with you. I want to hire well, you. And we got really close with And when did you meet him? Oh, many years ago. Uh, okay. Probably in 2000. Okay. This is what I was thinking of. I'll read it to you. Okay. Though every grain of sand is largely about David's recovery from severe drug addiction, I hope that anyone who reads it will recognize how all of us find ways to escape being fully present with ourselves and with what is, whether though through alcohol or drugs, television, food, sex, shopping, social media, or any other adequate distraction from our thoughts and feelings. We all look outside of ourselves for relief, and though not all coping strategies are as destructive as crystal meth, all such efforts take us away from the experience of our essential selves and the joy of being. The good news is that no matter what has happened in our lives, beneath all of our behavior is a whole and perfect spiritual being, a revolutionary idea in a world in which we chronically perceive ourselves as broken or damaged in some way. We create our lives from those core beliefs and confirm their apparent truth by the resulting experiences. As this story illustrates, we can only break destructive patterns with love and compassion for ourselves and others. Talk a little bit about addiction. I want to hear your, your read on it at this point in time. Currently, my current status of addiction. Yeah. Well, and that, and TJ really said, it, said it all. And I kind of, I, mean, I think he kind of, I, I probably earlier on in this podcast repeated basically what he had said so eloquently in the forward to my book. Um, for me, there's the, you know, the medical science community uh, likes to uh, card out the disease manifestation of addiction, which I'm not here to negate or argue anyone's reality around that. Okay. However, and, and it took me a really, really, really long time to break free from my addiction of drugs and alcohol. And, uh, and I've changed a lot over the years. And in my opinion about addiction has changed a lot, but I definitely don't use drugs and alcohol. Um, any longer. And I haven't for 16 years. What Congratulations. I find, thank you. What I find very interesting though, is after I kind of allowed myself to open up from a place of, you know, always being an alcoholic and a drug addict, always, you know, identifying as this person with a disease 
and started really seeing myself as whole. And, and I say this a lot, I'm going to say it again. <laughs> I believe the problem with the problem is that we keep believing in the problem. And from that place of brokenness, from that idea that I am this thing, I am an addict, I am an alcoholic, it, it re-manifests and retells the story of the constant struggle to be free from something. But it also tells a story of the victory of freedom from that story. And there, there's two sides to that coin. It's like I've climbed the mountaintop, I've gotten on top of the mountain, and here I am, look at me go. And then there's this, I've crawled through the gutter and I've stuck needles in my arm in the tenderloin and I am a, you know, sold my body for drugs and I did all these things and what a piece of crud I was. And both sides of that identification are manifestations of brokenness. Mm. In no places did I see or identify as myself of someone who on my way up the mountain, I fed people who were hungry on my way up the mountain. Did I clean up the trash on my way up the mountain? Did I uh, um, seek out and try to uh, add something into the stream of life, be more useful in the world, participate in joyful, uh, loving and kindness and compassionate events? And so once my life changed and I started participating that way in life, my thoughts around addiction really evolved. And that's what I was really great. It was really wonderful to find TJ, um, who kind of has this uh, alternative spin on recovery and working a program of recovery. Um, there's a lot of God and spiritual talk in the 12-step recovery program that I don't resonate with. And there's a lot of black and white thinking around abstinence and uh, a sense of belonging that, that it almost feels like in order for you to succeed here, you must do these things. Instead of saying, welcome, you have already succeeded. Thank you for being here. I see you for who you are. You know, I look across the room and I see 100% complete success, even if you're loaded and you are acceptable and loved and welcome. And you may hear that from people, but it's not always what people say that affects the person in the room who needs a sense of belonging. Right. It's what they do. It's the behavior around it. And so it's just an interesting take. And so I don't participate as much as I used to in 12-step recovery. I really am uh, moving my awareness to more of a coming from a place of wholeness instead of from a constant place of brokenness. I admit that I was addicted to drugs, that I had struggled and I couldn't get past it for many, many years because I believed in the problem. I believed in the brokenness of who I was and I needed that relief and the drugs and alcohol gave me that relief. They no longer serve me that way, but at 13 years of sobriety, of complete and utter abstinence, working the program of recovery and 12 steps and being in meetings and doing the, the whole deal, I was curled up in a fetal position, making more money than I'd ever made in my life, living a lovely life with a husband and uh, three dogs and a beautiful home that I purchased and have a job that I love, feeling like I was broken, feeling like if this is all there is, I don't want to be here anymore. Because I had this, and I'll wrap it with this, um, I had this belief in me that something was inherently wrong, that something was missing. And I was constantly out there seeking for ways to fix something that I believed was broken. And mm -hmm. I couldn't identify what was broken. There was just this weird unknowingness inside of me. And when I finally got down to it and really sat with myself around it, 
I discovered that the sense of disconnect and that sort of weird feeling that I don't belong or that uneasiness inside of me is actually the illusion Hmm. that that feeling, that kind of butterfly in the gut, that little emptiness, that little bit of confusion is a gift. It's calling out to me to get more in touch with myself, to really sit with what am I really feeling right now? Do I immediately identify it as a problem and try to fix it? And I just sit with it and say, Mm -hmm. you know, I feel uncomfortable. I feel like I don't belong. Where is this coming from? What is this rooted in? I feel disconnected. I'm confused right now. I start identifying these things and I sit with the confusion and I allow myself to be confused. I don't try to change it. I don't try to take a pill or go to a therapy session or try to lock it up away in a room or I'm angry and I've acted out and I've screamed at my partner. I don't take that anger and go, you're wrong and you're, you go away because I'm not going to be angry. I'm only going to be positive and in a good mood today. And that's what pisses me off a lot about choosing happiness. It's like you can choose happiness all you want, <laughs> but if you don't embody and embrace your anger and your hostility and your darkness and the shadow, you're just locking it up for another, for an, for a rainy day. And so that is really where I've been um, with, I lost my train of thought a little bit, but that's really <laughs> where I've gone with feelings and emotions in recovery because a lot of recovery is all about uh, not wanting to feel what we're feeling, not wanting to be in our bodies. Right. Yeah. Something I learned recently, I'll give you an example. Uh, you know, I work with Mark Hollenstein doing energy work and that, but probably about two weeks ago, it was a Friday night and I just felt I, everything was going great, but I just felt shitty, totally shitty. And I felt the end of the world was coming. I felt you know, no one understood me. I felt fearful. I felt all of this stuff. And then I realized that's not my energy. That's some, that's the collective energy affecting me right now. And it was very clear to me. I sat and I did a little bit of meditation in that, and I actually released that. And it was like a huge difference, but do you think that's true? My experience, or what do you think about that? I love that. I think that's really, uh, a really powerful, important thing to mention is a lot of stuff sometimes we're feeling, and I believe this, doesn't belong to us. Right. We pick it up and we carry it around. We right. take ownership of it and make it a part of us. And those feelings and emotions don't truly belong to us. For some reason, we carry them around. So when right. you're watching the cable news or paying attention to social media and you see Oof. the insanity and the chaos that's hitting you like a right. you know a machine gun, we're picking up a lot of that stuff and carrying it around with us. And so it's a really important practice to sit with it and, and identify it and say, is this, is this mine? It, right. This doesn't belong to me. And I'll tell you this quick little story because it's, okay. it's funny. Um, I was at a, an ayahuasca retreat a few years ago, and they were telling us a story of these parents that brought their child with them to an ayahuasca retreat, which is a psychedelic medicine retreat with a shaman and all these things. And the child had gotten into the ayahuasca and drank some of it a little oh, bit. Wow. Of it. And everybody was worried about it. But, you know, the, the people in the Amazon, they actually give their children a little bit of ayahuasca when they're feeling sick to, because it's medicine for them. And that may sound crazy, but they actually do. They put it in their baby's milk sometimes. Oh. And the child Whoa. six years old and was in the pool standing there and everybody was worried about her. And she was like speaking to them saying, this doesn't belong to me. This is yours. And she was handing back emotions to her family, to her mother and father. Oh, She's wow. like, I don't, 
this isn't mine. This is yours. You don't know who I am. It was amazing. And Six hear, years old. Yeah. And to hear oh, the wow. story about this child who was just like letting go of things that she picked up along the way that didn't belong to her. It was a really poignant moment for me. I was like, wow, we do pick up stories and energies uh, on our path. And right. I think it's, it. we do it because we learn from it. We learn. And learn. what I've learned is to be more of an observer. Mm. Just hopefully without judgment, but just really observing whether it's those feelings or things I'm seeing, but just observe. And, you know, I don't need to say anything about it sometimes, mm. but I want to go back to something. Okay. So you talked about addiction. So yes. let's throw one at you. So you come out, you come from a drug and alcohol addiction background. I mean, that's what happened in your life, right? Yes. So what if somebody said to you today, okay, well, you're past that, but you've just exchanged that addiction for another one. And now you're, you know, you're a sex addict. So what, what would you say to that? Absolutely. I say, hell yes. I'm a sex addict. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so I'm a sex addict. If, are... if my sex life is addictive, I am 100% in it. I, I know what the question is. And right. I know what you're saying. And, um, I mean, and they obviously and I, don't and know you who are I, saying that. They're, they but don't know it's you. It's true. And in, in, in a way, we can all say that uh, social media is an addiction and that anything that, that removes us from having to be present with our bodies, being present with ourselves, is pseudo addictive behavior. So if I'm out shopping and spending money, or if I'm fixing on sex, or if I'm fixing on. Uh, a relationship or if I'm fixing on any number of things, caffeine, nicotine, uh, y you name it. Yes. You do swap out one addiction for the other, but what if you, what if addiction is the illusion? What if addiction and the problem is actually the illusion? The science community will scream at me for saying something like that, but okay. Explain that. And, and you know, they believe that disease, that addiction is a medical condition that a drug and alcohol addiction, and they define it in the literature of these books, um, that it is a, uh, Oh God, I'm going to get it wrong. <laughs> They're all, uh, it's a disease. It centers in the mind and it produces the phenomena of craving. Now, it centers in the mind. I get an idea. Maybe I'll take a drink, just one. And then I take the drink or the drug and it produces the phenomenon of craving or does the phenomenon of craving occur? And then I just go for it. Now, I won't take a drink of alcohol or do a drug because I know from a very, very long, long history of what happens to me the moment um, I do that. And I'm not willing to test it. I'm deathly afraid of going down that road again. But um, hmm. uh, the idea is that it is a medical condition and I'm all for it. Let it be a medical condition. But if the solution, which they talk about in 12 separate program is only spiritual in nature, then where is the, I guess, where's the science in that? So I don't really know. We all have, we've been trained from the beginning, from the moment we were a child and we took our first steps and everybody cheered us on and said, um, look at my baby. They take pictures and they post it to Instagram. My baby took their first steps. And then you get to kindergarten and uh, you learn how to spell a word and then you get a gold star. And from the very beginning, we're indoctrinated into solving problems. And so by solving problems, we're constantly looking for problems to solve. And so we are in this organism where we are problem solving and we are really manifesting new and better problems all the time to solve. And it may be human nature, but at the same time, if you really step back a moment and uh, ask yourself, am I constantly seeking outside of myself for a problem to solve so that I will feel acceptable? That's the nature of addiction, truly. 
I mean, trauma happens along the way, and that's a big problem because I don't want to feel the pain that I felt of being unacceptable and unlovable by my parents, so I'm going to get loaded. And I'm going to be disconnected from my community because I've become a career criminal. I have become an outcast. I have then newer and better problems to solve, even bigger problems to solve. And so here I am on this path of solving a problem of the problem and continuously believing in the problem. And that problem is the God, right? That's the the spiritual solution that 12-step recovery tells us we need this God-sized hole that needs to be filled that can never be filled unless we do any number of things to make sure we're being of service in our community, that we're loving other people, that we're doing our work and all that stuff. And so everything, your bed sheet can be an addiction. (laughs) Clean sheets is a massive addiction for me. (laughs) Okay. I love to lay in clean sheets. It's, and I say that kind of facetiously, but we can check out on anything. There are people who read nonstop. People who, because I've just written this book and I'm involved with book reader communities, Mm -hmm. I see this massive reading addiction going on and it's wild. It's wonderful. Wow. Yeah. As long as they keep buying your book. As long as they keep buying books in general. (laughs) Yes. So what's a better way of thinking about all that? Oh, I have a really good answer for that actually. Okay. Let's hear it. Don't wrong it and don't write it. Say that again. Don't wrong it and don't write it. Don't make it wrong to feel like I've swapped an addiction for uh, cigarettes or caffeine or clean sheets. And don't write it either. Don't make it right. And so here's the idea of the duality of right and wrong and good and bad. We see things for what they are. Oh, yeah. He started smoking the minute he stopped shooting dope. Well, it's a little bit better of an addiction. There's all of these (laughs) negotiations that go on, right? The hierarchy of addiction. Right. And so uh, it's sort of risk assessment or harm reduction or whatever we choose to call it these days. And one of the things it is that you just said is becoming the observer, right? Allowing yourself to witness the behavior, allowing yourself to be a witness, stepping outside of judgment. And the more that you can do that, the more that I can do that, the further away, the further away I get from calling something addictive behavior. Because when I say addictive behavior, what do you think? You're doing something that you don't really want to do, but you have no control over it. Right. And that it's bad or unhealthy or toxic or whatever it is. As soon as I say, isn't that interesting? He's participating in some addictive behavior. I wonder what he's learning. I wonder what he's experiencing. And can I be compassionate and empathetic for that experience? And I, the heroes of recovery are the ones who can really stand in that place on the front lines of recovery while, you know, David the junkie is crawling in for the 15th time trying to get sober again. And they really have to, they really call to stand outside of judgment and say, I accept you right where you are. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll say this really important disclaimer about my position on 12-step recovery right now. I absolutely needed 12-step recovery. I needed all the A's. I needed the alcoholic and the narcotic and the crystal meth and the whatever kind of A they handed me. I needed it. And I loved it. And I still love it to this day. And I am not against it. I absolutely had to go through that in order to get where I am today. And I believe that a lot of people really need a a long period of sobriety and whatever it takes to get that in order to be able to see beneath your wound, be able before you can relate to yourself and others and the world at large and be connected to humanity in a way that feels really comfortable and loving and, and, um, And on purpose, I really needed to do that work. And so 
if you're new in recovery, if you're 60 days or one year or three years or five years or whatever, however, wherever you're at, and you feel like you still have work to do, do the damn work. Hmm. I got to where I am today, not because I'm better or worse. I just evolved into a different space. It doesn't mean that 12-step recovery doesn't work because it really worked for me really well. And it really works for millions of people all over the world. So when I talk about my experience, it's just my experience and it's not an argument for one program over another at all. So I just want to make sure that that's really clear and uh, that I said that. Well said. Before we go, I, there's one other thing, and it's probably another podcast and maybe we'll do it another time in detail, mm-hmm. but I think you're, you mentioned you do massage and sound baths. So yeah. how does that work? It was emergency funding that <laughs> caused that. Uh, the pandemic hit and um, my work dried up. A lot of my work is travel related and it's, you know, I travel a lot all over the world with clients. And um, when the pandemic hit, I was in lockdown and I had no way of making money. And so I um, enlisted an old uh massage technique that I learned. And I had, uh, you know, obtained these crystal sound bowls, uh, when I was building uh, virtual reality apps, which is another long story, but, um, and I learned how to play them and I implemented them into my practice and, um, it has had a profound experience on the people that I work with, but also on myself in general, because I was in a lot of despair during the pandemic. And I was really in a lot of fear that, um, the debt was piling up and the money wasn't coming in and the house was, you know, it was that moment of financial insecurity. And I set up my table and uh, some fans and I obtained a bunch of black market COVID tests and I started working in my backyard. And, um, and it's been really incredible to see the men wake up on my table and to see the, um, how does, how does sound do that? So does sound change your energy or what does it do exactly? Any thoughts on I, that? I actually don't really know. You don't? It I don't. I, and... Here's the thing. <laughs> I know, It's not that I don't know. I, I know that the immersion and the resonance of the tuned crystal sound bowls really help you feel the stillness. There's that pause in meditation between two thoughts. And sometimes it's fleeting and sometimes it's really not there. And sometimes it's hard to get into a space of stillness and the sound bowls and the meditation and the breathing and the touch uh, allow over this 90 minute period of time to really allow you that pause. And that pause is where it's all at. We'll talk more about that. I think we'll have you back on one of these days when you're back home and not traveling. Right. (laughs) So if somebody's curious about you and how do they find you or where where can they go? Where can they learn more? It's very easy. My website is davidsworld.me, davidsworld.me. And it's all there. And I mean all of it. (laughs) So they can find the book. They They can can find find the links. They can find everything. Yes. Okay. All right. I appreciate you coming today. It's Mm. fun. I have to admit, you're the first person I've I've interviewed that's made me cry, but <laughs> that's it's all good. Thank you for being and, vulnerable. Uh, th- thank yeah. you, thank you for being here. I appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Bye.